the sun doesn't shine anywhere at 4 a.m. in the morning. But that doesn't stop you from getting up and getting your day started. Imagine a watch that's powered by the movement of your body. A man. A man in his truck. Acompaña tu Coca-Cola con lo mejor. Busca en los supermercados participantes. Uh, what was that? Sorry, I was thinking in a Spanish. She was a dame. They don't make them like her anymore. We salute our beer-drinking, flag-waving, real American listeners. This program is designed to offer you accurate information about company policies and procedures, benefit packages, performance reviews, training, and education opportunities. What are the biggest culprits of chronic inflammation? Hi, how may I help you? Para Español, Marquil Nueve. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company, from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership, and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Dan Hurst. For almost 20 years, Dan was the number one morning drive time host for KUDL Radio in Kansas City, Missouri. During much of that time, He was also the stadium announcer for the Kansas City Royals. For the last 15 years, Dan has enjoyed success as an award-winning voice talent, recording commercials, movie trailers, and corporate videos in both English and Spanish. In 2022, Dan was the winner of the Golden Trailer Award for the best voiceover in a TV series for the HBO series Winning Times. Dan is also the author of three books, and a Bible study leader at his church. You can learn more about Dan at danhurst.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Dan. Dan, welcome to the Corporate Couch Podcast. Thank you. What a privilege this is. Uh, you know, I've, I've known Joe, Deshaun. I, I, it's been, I think I've known him for 30 years or more. I think around 30 years. And yeah, uh, he's a phenomenal you know, guy. Yeah, he he's a good guy. I, I wish I liked him, but you know he's <laughs> he's just a good good guy. So. so for those who don't listen regularly, Joe is my co-host, producer, editor. So and he introduced me to Dan. So Dan has had a fantastic career as a radio celebrity in, in Kansas City, and now award-winning uh, voiceover talent. So we're going to get into a lot of different things here on this podcast. So I'm I'm very excited and honored to have you on the podcast, Dan. Thank you. What a what a privilege, and I'm I'm the one that's pleased. Thank you. I'd like to get uh, you know kind of warm things up a little bit. So I usually ask people. We've been in a pandemic a little over three years now. What's the craziest attire or lack of attire you've ever seen on a professional Zoom call? Uh, no pants. No pants. Um, and I and I was the guilty one. Uh, <laughs> you know, not surprising. Uh, you know, it, I, no, I know it shouldn't be. I, I, I work in my home. This is my, we're in my studio right now. 
And uh, right behind me to uh, over here is uh, my little booth where I will go and uh, sit and in, uh, in a padded room for several hours a day and talk to myself. And then uh, then around me in this room uh, where I'm sitting right now uh, is my edit, basically my edit suite. So I'm it's all self-contained here. And during the pandemic, I took a hit at the very beginning where because everybody was just panicking, you know, people didn't know whether they're going to have jobs, a business, many businesses folded. And so at, at first I took a, a pretty good hit. And then within just uh, two or three months, it all came back and it even it even got better because um, one of the segments that I work in in voiceovers is e-learning. I do a lot of e-learning in English and Spanish. And there was a lot of e-learning training going on uh, that was being used by companies to make sure that their employees who are working from home understood the ramifications of what they were doing. Everything from security to uh, the legalities of it to uh, the efficiency, all of those sort of things. So there was a lot of e-learning going on during that time that normally didn't didn't happen. So I was busy. I was really busy during the pandemic. And so it didn't really affect me that much, just just for about two or three months. And then all of a sudden it just like took off. And so um, and now that the pandemic is essentially over, um, businesses now the businesses that had gone away are now starting to come back. So last year was my biggest year ever. And this year looks like it's it's following suit. So it's been a it's been an interesting transition to say the least, but I didn't really get affected by uh, me personally because, I mean, I don't know if you know this, Jeff, but I have to climb 16 steps to my studio every day. <laughs> you know, it's just, it just takes its toll. <laughs> and so, but aside from that, it's good. So I usually don't ask this question, but since you were a, a radio personality for uh, 20 plus years in Kansas City, and you got to interview, uh, I'm sure, a ton of uh, celebrities, uh, musicians, singers, uh, songwriters. Uh, what's the craziest thing someone did in an interview uh, with you or your co-host, Darcy Blake? I remember you and Darcy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Darcy. Darcy's a sweetheart. She um, still is. And she doesn't like me. I don't know if people know that, but uh, she she doesn't like me. Um, no, she does. We're... we're... We're I was good thinking friends. you were kidding, but I wasn't. Yeah, no, we're we're good friends. I love her. She's like a sister to me. Yeah, and uh, and Glow Goodwin also for a number of years. Yeah. Right. Um, I, as far as the craziest thing that happened, you know, it's it's interesting because all of my interviews, when I did interviews, I, I made it a point to not go in the direction that the person expected to go, and I would do research on the people that I interviewed, and I'd find out little things about them that many people didn't know. And so when you have a, a celebrity interview, generally they're promoting something. And so um, they you, you're expected to talk about whatever it is that they're promoting. And they'll tell you, oh, you'll have, you know, Mr. So-and-so for 10 minutes. I never, never had a, a, an interview for 10 minutes unless I just wanted to get rid of them. Because they all wanted to, you know, they all hung around 20, 30 minutes. I had Kenny Loggins for three hours one time. Wow. And, and it was just, but it was all about getting to know them and what makes them tick. And so I would study these guys and I'd find out what it is that they liked. And Smokey Robinson was, is, is such a perfect example of that. He came in, he was doing a tour. He was still doing 
he was still touring. Well, he still does, but I mean, he was still, he was touring a little bit more than he is now. And, uh, I did some research on him and I said, how many, we started off the interview and talked a little bit about his, his tour and so forth. And so I got that out of the way. And I said, Smokey, how many songs have you written? He said, I don't know. I said, do you know how many songs you've published? And he said, I don't know. And I said, 2,200. And he said, how do you know that? And I said, I made it up. Um, And he just started laughing. And it's actually, it is pretty close. It's 21 something. But anyway, uh, and I said, but here's what I really want to know. Here's what I really want to know about you, you Smokey. Uh, where's your favorite golf course? He's an avid golfer, an avid golfer. And he just looked, he had this quizzical look like, well, you know, and we started talking golf. And for the next 30 minutes, we talked about golf on, you know, and this was on KUDL, which was, uh, it was a women's, technically a woman's station, women's music, adult contemporary. It was considered targeted toward women although we had a lot of male listeners, uh, but it was, it, and here we are talking golf for 30 minutes. And he was just so pleased that somebody asked him about something that he really loved and didn't get a chance to talk about very often. So I did that a lot with him. So some of the, some of them just got goofy, crazy because they just got fun. Kenny Loggins started sending me Christmas cards. He sent me Christmas cards for five years in a row because we had just bonded, you know, during that time. And it was a difficult interview, by the way, because he had just left his wife and kids and taken up with uh, another woman. And and it was all news. It was all common knowledge. And I just point blank asked him, I said, what are you thinking? What were you, who walks out on their wife and their kids? And uh, man, he just got, he, he looked stunned, you know, but he just started talking about that and the difficulty in relationships and everything. And he started crying. I mean, he actually wow. was weeping a little bit. And it was one of those things. It was it was a serendipitous moment where you can't you can't do anything but just listen and take it all in. It almost is like a it's almost like a a, a counseling couch, you know, and we're talking about life and talking about our kids and relationships. And it went on and on and on and on and on. I didn't play a commercial for three hours you know, because wow. I didn't I didn't want to stop what we were doing. Yeah, it was great. So those kinds of things happened in those interviews. The craziest interview had to have been uh, Joe Cocker. Uh, because I didn't understand a word he said. <laughs> I, I, never, <laughs> I, I asked him questions and he would answer and I had no clue what he was saying. That could and have so, been Joe Cocker or it could have been Joe Walsh. It could have been either one. You're right. But Cocker just, he just had that accent that nobody understood. Plus it was just, I don't know if the guy always talked like that or I don't know, but I never understood a word he said in, in the entire 20, 30 minutes that I had him. And, uh, and, you know, for the rest of the show, people were calling it. We, we said, we played a game after that. We said, what did Joe say? And we'd play a little bit back and people had to call in and, you know, give their opinion of what he said. I don't think any, anybody in Kansas city understood what he said that day. That's funny. And it's, you know, it's crazy what you remember. I remember probably late eighties, uh, listening to Skid Rody. Yeah. Um, uh, on KY 102 in the afternoon. He was, he, he actually interviewed a lot of, uh, rock uh, musicians and yep. he was interviewing joe walsh and i never and i the stuff you remember i just remember skid going hey what joe what's your favorite food and you know joe goes gum <laughs> <laughs> and actually i just saw the eagles when they came through kansas city uh, last november 
and they still sound phenomenal, but they do, you know, what Joe was saying to the crowd, like between songs, no idea. He's the funniest guy though, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's just funny. He's just one of those guys that you just, you start laughing and you can't stop. You know, it's, it's just, he's just funny. I, I love him. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's called the corporate couch. So I like to ask people, uh, when they were growing up, when they were a kid, what did they want to be when they uh, grew up? So what, what was that for you, Dan? You know, it was, it was, I grew up in Honduras in Central America. My, uh, my parents were missionaries and uh, uh, they went to the mission field when I was 10 months old. So that's all I knew. Oh, wow. And so we would stay in Honduras for five years, come back to the United States for one year, go back to Honduras for five more years. So really I, I had very little connection to the United States and very little understanding of what went on. But I did know that there was the, there were these things called movies <laughs> and I thought they were pretty cool because they had a few movie theaters in Tegucigalpa, which is the capital of Honduras. And so, and I'd go to movies and I was thought, man, I'd, I'd like to be a, a movie actor and you know, who doesn't, what kid doesn't dream about that. And, um, and so I kind of pursued you know, that idea that eventually I, I would do some, I would do some acting. <clears throat> and actually when I got into college, um, I, I, I was, uh, pursuing that and, uh, dropped out of college one year, uh, to go with, uh, uh, a stage group. It was called Eastern Repertory Theater. And we traveled around doing mostly classical theater, Greek tragedy, Shakespeare, um, Chekhov, you know, and we traveled to universities and colleges and uh, would perform these various different classical plays. That got to be the loneliest life I've ever known in my life. It was pathetic. It was, I was on the road all the time. Uh, we'd come back from, from a tour and I didn't have anywhere to live. You know, I was, at that time, I was, I guess I was 17 or 18 years old, something like that. I, I, I had been a, it was my second year of college that I dropped out of. So yeah, probably around, cause I went to college when I was 16. So I was probably around 17, 18 and I didn't have anywhere to, to, to go. I didn't have a home. I, you know, my parents lived in Honduras. I didn't have anybody around South Carolina that I knew that I could go stay with. So I lived in a hotel and the Calhoun hotel in Anderson, South Carolina, which is where uh, uh, Milton Dickinson, who was the the director, he lived, and we would always go back to to Anderson. I just stay in the Calhoun Hotel, seven dollars a night. Wow! And uh, uh, it was it was such a lonely life because going on the road, I was always with the team, you know, with the with the with the actors, and that usually was around you know seven or eight. It was a group of around seven or eight people, and uh, and so they were your family and your friends. But when when we were back home. And it usually was only for like a week or two. I didn't know anybody and I was just living in a hotel, you know, wow. and doing, doing nothing. And I decided during that, that if this is what acting is all about, I don't want a part of this. And so I just kind of took a different path at that point. And I had started playing guitar and I had thought, man, I'd like to do some, some music also. And I'd started writing and um, uh, I started playing my guitar in some little bars and stuff around different towns and everything. And eventually started uh, getting a, a request to go to this particular place or this, this place to, to perform that sort of thing. And uh, I actually ended up doing some stuff and traveling a little bit with uh, Livingston Taylor, uh, James Taylor's brother. And um, 
just doing some stuff along that line, just doing some, some, um, you know, spending a night and doing a coffee house or doing a small venue and performing like that. And I really, really enjoyed doing that. That was fun. So I guess performing was in my blood. That's what I wanted to do. And I didn't know exactly what that would, what it would incur in my life. When I had, when I was 13 years old, I actually started working in radio. There was a little radio station down there and I was really interested in it. And I started hanging around and they gave me a job. So I started developing a knowledge of, of radio and how radio worked and, and what I could do in radio. And so between gigs, you know, when I wasn't singing or wasn't going to college uh, at the time, I would, I would work in radio. And so that kind of became, eventually became a career choice for me and, and a very successful one for me. But that's kind of where it all started in those, in those early years. Wow, that's that's phenomenal. So you were you started in radio in Honduras then? I did. Wow. First uh, first day on the job, uh, this uh, radio station is actually a shortwave radio station. Uh, they had asked me to come and do, it was around Christmas time, and they wanted me to come in in the morning and play Christmas music and uh, and do and and do an English show basically with Christmas music. That uh, was okay. That's cool. And so they gave me my told me what day I was starting and. I, you know, I had been trained. I knew what I was supposed to do. I got to the radio station that morning and it was in downtown Tegucigalpa. I got to the radio station that morning and they had forgotten to give me a key to get into the building. Oh, and so, so I had to crawl up. I ha- actually climbed up to the second story and broke in to a door there and, uh, and actually got, got the radio station turned on. So my first job in radio, they didn't want me. They had already locked the door on me. So and they, they, uh, but that was my first job and that's where it started. And, and I loved it and I, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. And, and I always had fun for the most part working in radio, the more I had to deal with the corporate uh, suits that, that became a burden. And I really grew to loathe that. I mean, just, just hate it. And that's, I think one of the, one of the sad things that happened in, in my radio career, we had such a, a great career here in, in Kansas city and, I spent uh, 25 years, almost 25 years, and most of that, we were number one in the mornings. And, But it got to the point where I just hated the uh, company, you know, the people that were making decisions up in their up in their ivory towers and had no clue what, what radio was really all about. They thought it was just about listening to music and selling commercials. And they missed the whole point that radio is really about content. That's why talk radio and sports radio is so popular because it's all about content and it's things that people want to know about. And so this idea that we can turn this radio station into a jukebox and um, and we'll make money is stupid and it's irresponsible and um, it's it's pretty much destroyed radio, I think. Yeah, interesting. So um I saw you went, you graduated. So you, uh, based on your LinkedIn, you were in college from 1900 to 1981 or yeah. 13 <clears throat> years, which is your bio on your website. So true. Uh, yeah. 13 but, years, but you were Palm beach Atlantic university graduated finally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And communications yeah. major. Why'd you pick communications? Radio. Radio. You know, I was, a, I was able to do a, a broadcast journalism um, was really my focus and uh, and in fact, <clears throat> when I actually finally got into radio full time, I just expected to be a newsman and and to do news. And my first full time um, true radio job 
was at the old KCMO, which at that point was a, a talk station. Well, it still is uh, the AM um, <clears throat> was a talk station. And that was, you know, that was where Mike Murphy had been on there. And, you know, and uh, I think Walt Bodine had been on there for a while. Uh, uh, there was a lot of old timers that had been part of KCMO's news history. And uh, some people might remember Jack Erie, one of the great reporters. And that's where I started. And I just started as a street reporter. And um, pretty soon uh, the the program director said, look, I want you, we need a, we need somebody that will do um, the news in the midday show. And so I had been doing news for, um, well, I had been going into work like overnight, getting all the news, hitting all the beats, going to the police station, getting all the stories, doing all of that, and, and then filing reports in the morning that they could use throughout the day for that matter. But he said, we need somebody to do live news uh, starting with our midday show. And so <clears throat> I, I said, okay. So I did that. And then um, one day I was, I was working some, I was, I was doing the, something was going there. There was somebody that was missing. Uh, the person who was actually hosting wasn't there. And it happened to be the day that awful story, this, you know, these, this, these, these astronauts were just, you know, they were just gone. They just were vaporized. And there was just horrible story about this terrible crash and, and this explosion. And, and, and I was, and the boss came in and he said, you got to stay on the air with this. And so I just started doing talk radio and, and uh, we started contacting different people to get news and bits and information and people who could kind of serve as some, um, give us some insight as to what happened and what went wrong and that sort of thing. And I stayed on the air for 13 hours. And uh, the wow. next, the next day uh, the boss called me in and he said, uh, you've got a show. You're going to start doing talk show. You're going to start doing talk radio. And so they gave me a shift in the uh, early afternoon. And uh, that's really kind of where it started. And I didn't want to do hard news and, and political talk. I, you know, that stuff doesn't interest me. <clears throat> so I did more lifestyle type stuff. And then pretty soon uh, uh, another radio station at the time was known as KLSI, a guy by the name of, of uh, John Frost, who was the program director there. He said, look, why don't you come over here and talk to us? And uh, and eventually what happened was they wanted somebody to come in and do afternoons and do the kind of lifestyle talk that I was doing between music. And so uh, eventually that's that's where I ended up is is at KLSI, which was then purchased by another company. They became Mix 93 and uh, I was moved to mornings on Mix 93. And then um, the company bought KUDL. And I didn't want to stay with Mix 93 because that was just not a music that I was really familiar with. KUDL was more along the style and the music that I was familiar with. And I said, look, you know, if and they were looking for a morning show. And I said, I'd like to be considered for the morning show for KUDL. And they went, sure. And the next week I started at KUDL. I didn't even have to switch studios. I stayed in the same studio I was in. They just changed some wires and, and uh, we were off and running. And that's where it all started. And I think that was... I started in 1984 here in Kansas City. I'm trying to remember what year it was that I actually started in mornings at KUDL. But anyway, it was it was almost it was close to 20 years uh, of morning shows at, with uh, with between Mix 93 and KUDL. So Dan, how did you navigate from Palm Beach Atlantic University to Kansas City? Like, how did you get that first job at uh, KCMO? Well, my wife is from Liberty. Oh. And so, and we wanted to move back here and 
I was real involved with church work at the time, still am, but uh, I was, I, I felt like I wanted to do something where I could work more in a situation with churches that needed so much, small churches, churches that were split or broken or dying, whatever. And I felt like I really wanted to be a part of that. And we thought, well, let's, let's, let's do that. But to do that, I'm going to have to have a good job that I can support my family. And because no church is going to be able to, especially a church in that kind of condition, uh, can support somebody. And so that's when I started really going into radio full time and started building that career. But it came back to work with those kind of situations, churches that were, um, we call them uh, churches at risk. And, um, and so that's what, uh, that's what I started doing. And, and, uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And and the business side of it, the career, the radio career and everything was what I did to support what I really wanted to do, which was to work with those those little churches. And uh and I still get to do that. And it's it's a, an absolute joy. It's just a, it's such a privilege to to work with uh, organizations, small organizations like that that are just wanting to get back on their feet. And it's a, it's a real pleasure to be able to do that. About halfway through my radio career, I began to realize that radio was going to soon end. Eventually, it was going to come to a screeching halt. And so <clears throat> I'd already dabbled a little bit in doing some voice work and a little bit of voiceover here and there. And I thought that, you know, there's a there's there's something here. I could probably do something with this. And so I started building my career, if you will, my voiceover career. But that that takes time. You can't you don't just start it. And all of a sudden you're off and running. You, you have to build a client base. I needed coaching. I needed to learn what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. I needed to know how to market myself. How do you market yourself in voiceovers? You know, that's that I'd never heard of that before. So I started building my business in voiceovers. And then when um, one day we were all called in and we were all fired from KUDL. And I knew that that was going to happen eventually. And I came home and I'd already been doing some voiceover work and building my client base. And I called all of my clients and I said, okay, I'm in this full time. And the next day I worked eight hours in voiceover work. So that transition from Palm Beach to Kansas City was to be able to work with young churches, small churches that were, were in trouble. And uh, that continued because I can do my voiceover work and still work with, with those kind of situations. And uh, But the transition into, into voiceover work was just simply out of need. I needed to have something that could support me. And so I've been full-time in, in, uh, in voiceover work now for over 15 years, and uh, I absolutely love it. I wish KUDL had fired me 10 years earlier because <laughs> I love what I'm doing. So a couple things unpack there, Dan. So one is it's interesting. You started your career at 13 in a Honduras uh, radio station, and they locked you out. And then essentially <laughs> you got locked out at KUDL on your last yeah. day. So yeah. it was kind of a fitting uh, bookend uh yeah, no kidding. And uh, type of thing for your uh, your DJ career, at least. I mean, you had some great futuristic thinking, knowing that radio was going to maybe not totally end, but not be the same thing as what you were used to. What I mean, what gave you an inkling to that? When I saw that what was happening with corporate radio and how corporate radio was actually just squeezing profits, that's really all they were doing. Most corporate radio companies, uh, they are not so much in the broadcast business as much as they are in selling stock business. And uh, and so when I saw that happening, I began to realize we've got people, we've got bean counters that are now running our radio stations and they don't get what it is that we do as broadcasters. And, and 
the connection that we have with our people and the connection that a radio station has with the community. And they don't care. They just, they don't care. And so, um, and that's when I really began to realize this is not going to end well. It's just uh, radio stations are going to go the way that newspapers have gone. And, um, um, and sure enough, it, it started when it started happening, it started happening rather quickly. And it was the writing was on the wall. And, you know, I think all of us that were in radio, and I think a lot of people in radio to this day would agree that that's, that's essentially what's going to end up with, you know, the radio stations that do well are the little country stations. And I mean, country being rural, not necessarily the format country, but the little stations that are out in the rural towns where they're the only station in town and they know everybody and everybody knows them and everybody listens to them. And, you know, they carry the the Friday night games and they give the farm reports in the morning and, you know, they're involved in the people's lives because it's all about content. And uh, uh, those stations can do quite well. But stations in a in a large market like Kansas City, I think I don't know what size Kansas City is now, but it used to be number thirty three in the nation. In stations in that kind of a market, and there were a lot of stations, and it still are a lot of stations in Kansas City. Man, they're just it's tough to sell advertising and to keep those things alive, and so they start squeezing the profits and start. KUDL was a cash cow for years and years and years. And they were t- they were just basically taking the money from KUDL. And this is my opinion, by the way. I'm not saying that, that it was a fact because I don't want to get sued. But uh, basically, the money was being redirected to help other radio stations they weren't doing as well. I'm not a radio expert by any, but I would think, too, uh, the pandemic severely hurt radio because I, at least from my Terribly. own viewing, I was yeah. it was usually in a car. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Exactly. Most most listeners, radio listeners are uh, in a car, you know, by 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 a long shot. And so if you're not driving to work, (laughs) there there goes your listenership. And uh, yeah, it radio radio was horribly uh, affected by by the pandemic. TV, not so much because people were at home and they were watching TV and TV had some of their best years. But uh, yeah, pandemic uh, did a number on on radio. And and I don't know that I think radio was already uh, sick and uh, that just really, really did a number on, on the radio industry as, as a whole. Yeah. It's interesting too, as you mentioned, you know, corp, you know, corporate radio uh, was the start of the demise of, you know, the broadcast world um, because it's almost like uh, in, you know, corporate America outside of the radio industry, like it's always like sales and marketing, having the same argument you're having yeah. with finance about, Hey, you know, we know we're building sure. relationships with customers. We need the money to do that. And we're bringing in money, but you know, when you start cost cutting and, you know, letting people go and making somebody that uh, is busy uh, today. And then now they have to do the jobs of two other people that they let go and, you know, it, it, it's, it gets into the mental health arena and then you layer a pandemic on that. And, you know, that's why mental health uh, today is, is such a big. Um, exactly. Um, you know, big and, and, and companies today, it's all about cash flow. It's all about your cash runway. You know, how, how long can we go based on, on, on our resources at this point? You know, what do we do uh, to turn things around? I, I love to play the stock market and I love, studying companies and and how they're handling themselves in these treacherous times 
And there are some companies that are, you know, I mean, they're going to be okay. Um, their stock might be down, but stock prices are kind of based on what buyers think, you know, and, and, and not so much on the reality. There are some companies that are doing quite well and, uh, and they have a good cash flow. I mean, some of the tech companies are huge. I mean, look at Apple, Apple could probably go for, I don't know, three or four years if they never sold another smartphone, but, um, that they've got the cash runway for that, but smaller companies that, that don't have that kind of cash flow and don't have those kind of reserves. This is a difficult time and they have to, they're surviving They're I mean, they're in a situation where it's just raw jungle survival and it's unfortunate. A lot of, a lot of people are, are, are getting hurt because of that. But by the same token, a lot of young companies are springing up too. That's been one of the things that's happened for me in my business in the voiceover business. A lot of these, these guys that I work for, they were in larger production houses or, or TV companies or whatever. And uh, they they lost their jobs. Well, they can't just stop working. So they started building their own little business and they needed guys like me to help them get started. And so now that some of them are really coming along, it's kind of fun. You know, it's it's I'm, I'm seeing some of these these young companies, young companies usually grow. Well, obviously, they grow faster than big companies. Big companies uh, get to a point where they just they don't really grow that much. They just keep producing. But young companies, those those micro companies, they they can do extremely well in situations that we're in right now because they're lean, they're mean, and they they know what it takes to uh, to at least survive. So, Dan, did you have a mentor when you went into voice voiceover, uh, being a voiceover talent? I mean, did you did somebody guide you? I know there was yeah. a, a fairly famous movie. I don't know, probably fifteen years ago now, maybe ten. Lake Bell. Uh, in a world about yeah. the, the famous, you know, the, probably the most famous voiceover talent, and it's yeah. Don something, but you Don LaFontaine, yeah, yeah, Don LaFontaine, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had when I got started, when I started checking into voiceovers and what was it going to take, and is there a possibility? Can I make? A, is there a possibility that I could build something and do something with it? Uh, there was only one agency in Kansas City at the time, and a company called Talent uh, Talent Limited, I believe. And Dick Solowitz was the manager. Dick Solowitz was a local actor, stage actor. Um, old timers will know who he is and remember him. And uh, he was managing this company and he kind of took me under his wing. He, he he didn't have anybody in his company that was fluent in Spanish. And there really wasn't a need for it at that point. But he was he was interested in the fact that I was hungry that I wanted to do the, this this sort of work, and that I would I was going to pay the price to do what I needed to do, and and uh, I could stick with it, and I wasn't desperate. I was just ambitious, and so he kind of took me under his wing and started teaching me little things about the business. There's a whole lot of similarity to what we do in voiceover work to stage work, you know, because it's basically you're acting without props, and uh, a lot of the stuff about you know discovering your voice and discovering you know, how to, the voice inflection that, that says something that, you know, the, the silent message, that sort of thing that goes along with the way you say something, all of that kind of came into play. And, and Dick was just a really good uh, mentor for me because he gave me that insight to understand how to not, uh, and I teach, I teach young voice people, uh, people that are getting into the business now, uh, I teach them there's a big difference between voice modeling and voice acting. Both are acceptable. Both are noble choices. 
but they're not the same. A, a, a voice model is like a fashion model, you know, who puts on clothes, walks down a runway, and they make the clothes look good. Well, a voice model makes the words sound good, makes the 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 story sound good, whereas a voice actor is actually in the story or lost in the story or or is developing a character that the listener uh, will identify with and and create a story in their own mind. So that's the difference between modeling and acting when it comes to voiceovers. And all I knew how to do at the time was voice model. I didn't really know how to voice act. And so Dick was real, real, real helpful in helping me to, to take my experience on stage and become, become a voice actor to begin, become a storyteller and to, um, or become a, a character in a commercial or a, a narration piece, a corporate narration piece, that sort of thing. And so the business just kind of grew from there because I was discovering new new ways of of developing my voice and becoming the voice that uh, that I could use. A great example of that, and I I love the series. I watch uh, Winning Time, the uh, story about the Lakers, <laughs> yeah. and I saw that you won the Golden Trailer Award for your yeah. Uh, and I I watched the trailer again because and you did uh, you impersonated uh, Chick Hearn, a longtime yeah. uh, L.A. Uh, play-by-play announcer and it was uh, yeah i just uh, you know obviously knowing that you had done that looked at it that trailer in a mm-hmm. whole different light because i i love the series so that was uh it was a great series wasn't it yeah it really was yeah, yeah. that was a kind of a surprise because i did not know that that had been submitted uh for for the award uh for for people who are just listening don't know the 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 golden trailer awards are kind of like the oscars for for movies and emmys for music um, golden trailer is kind of the, obviously not as big, but it's basically the same concept. It's, it's like, it's the ultimate award in the industry for, and it's given out every year for, for different sections and sectors of, uh, within the industry. And, um, I won that golden trailer for best voiceover for a series for TV series. And so HBO had submitted it and I did not know that. And I got a call one day from my agent. He said, Hey, Congratulations. And uh, I said, for what? He said, well, he said, you just won a golden trailer for, for the uh, Lake, Lakers dynasty. And I went, no, <laughs> you know, didn't even know that it had been submitted. So that was really nice, a pleasant surprise. And so now I've got this award that's as heavy as all get out. And it's just this black piece of marble. And it actually has a golden trailer on the top of it, like a, like a little, little trailer that, uh, that you would pull back in the fifties, you know, it was a real, real, uh, just, you know, it's just one of those kind of little, what do they call those little fastback trailers or teardrops yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And uh, it's just a little, you know, that's what's sitting on top of the, uh, of the marble. And I don't have anywhere to put it. So Marcia. I'm going to ask you, where do you have it? It's in the kitchen. Where, where else would you keep the golden trailer award? <laughs> it's, it's in the kitchen because I don't know where to put it. You know, uh, Marcia says, well, you can't put it in your studio because nobody ever goes there. And so it's got to be somewhere where people can see it. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, well. So it's sitting in the kitchen up on top of the pantry there. Appropriate place. <laughs> so Dan, so you, you know, you're in a corporate KUDL, Intercom, whoever the ownership was at the time when you left, like what was the biggest change uh, or surprise to you when you went out on your own, basically having to find your own business, doing your own marketing, learning the craft more. What, mm-hmm. what, what was the biggest surprises that uh, you found? How satisfied I am. How, how fulfilling that is, how, I, I mean, I just, I wake up with an energy that um, 
I just can't wait to get it. Every day in voiceover business is different. It's just, it, there's never a standard day in, in, in this industry. I mean, for example, today I did a movie trailer. I did six promos for a TV show. I did three commercials and, um, there's a couple of things that have come in while we've been talking. So uh, there'll be a couple of things to do uh, later on today. And I never know when I wake up sometimes. There are days when I wake up, I have absolutely no work lined up whatsoever. There are days that I have two or three days lined up for work. But it's um, uh, but it's it's amazing. Uh, I don't worry about it. I, I used to worry. I used to be, oh, my, I don't have anything going on. I'm unemployed, you know. But it's just, you know, my clients are basically in the same boat. Sometimes they don't have anything. And so it comes in and they're ready to move and they move quickly. And and uh, I end up getting a call in the middle of the day and and we're off and running. But it's different every day. And I absolutely love that. I, I, I'm free enough to just, if I want to take an afternoon off and go play some golf or, or just go do something else, um, I can do that generally. Uh, and if I need to travel, I'll go somewhere I can I can do that and take equipment with me and just set up a little studio in the hotel room and be as busy in a hotel room as I am in my studio. It's it's just so satisfying. I think that's that's the biggest thing. It was scary at first because I didn't know where the money was going to come from. I didn't know if I was going to be able to to make it. It was very busy right from the very start from that first day. But there are days after that where it just got really quiet, you know, there were crickets and I thought, oh, now what? Now what do we do? And so, I mean, I was doing the whole thing, you know, the marketing and the emails and the calls and the just doing everything that I could, you know, to to make more contacts. Eventually, what I found was that my best marketing source is uh, my clients and uh, referrals. And uh, if they if they refer me to somebody, it's because they want to. And if they refer me because they want to, then that person who hears that referral senses that and knows that, well, they're probably friends in the first place. And so they're going to, they're going to check me out or listen and, and uh, give me a call and just see what the options are. And so the business has spread for me. I mean, I just started off doing commercials, but now I do commercials and I do web training, e-learning, I do, um, what we call explainer videos, which are those little two, three minute videos that people put on their website to explain their product, that sort of thing. I do the movie trailers. I do TV promos. I do um, phone messaging. That's always a fun thing. We call it IVR. And uh, uh, so a lot of phone messaging. So is the IVR business going down a little bit? It's, you know, People are not in the office as much, but I guess you still need to say, you know, thank you for calling XYZ company or whatever. Yeah, it actually it actually went up. They okay. got busy because they had to change all of their messaging because things had changed. You know, they weren't in the office anymore and and uh or or they had a different extension or you know that some of the phone systems are set up where they could just actually transfer the call to person's cell phone or whatever. But they needed messages for all of those things. And so yeah, IVR got actually quite a bit more busy. Uh, because of the pandemic. So on a on a trailer for a movie, for example, is it um it's not interactive, right? Will you do like record 10 takes or 5 takes and send it to them and then, you know, then becomes an iterative process or how does that how does the actual process work, Dan? It it works it's different with every production house. Some production houses want to direct, which I love. Uh, but some just say, let's, you know, just give us, you know, several takes and, uh, you know, different speeds and uh, 
you know what to do and 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 it's it's done that way stuff i did today i just did on my own and um and so the company will take and i've worked enough with this company i know what they want i know what they expect uh and so i i give that to them and they don't have to go through it and go oh this won't work we don't like this oh man we got it i wish he had done this you know after a while, you learn what they want. And so that's why they keep coming back to you. It's also why it's so hard to break into this business, because particularly in the movie trailer business, man, it is hard to break that door down because they just don't want to go. They don't have the time, for one thing, to go train somebody to do it their way. And so you, it's just little by little, you make those connections and and uh, they start trusting you and, and uh, you start getting more opportunities. And, and then eventually you get writers that start writing for you because they know what you can do. They know your voice, they know your style and they hear you in their head and they can write for you. Um, I do some work for CNN and uh, some of the writers at CNN, that's the way they write. They decide who's going to be the voice and then they write for that voice because they know what that voice can do and how that voice is going to sound usually before they even send the copy to them. So it's, it, it, it varies from, from client to client. That concludes part one of Jeff's interview with Dan Hurst. Be sure to listen to part two as Dan continues his story discussing working on e-learning voiceovers here on The Corporate Couch.